Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Welcome to this latest edition of the No Restraint Podcast by me, Joyce Kaufman. I got a lot going on in my head, and I'm sure so do many others. First and foremost... It's a very volatile time in human history, and I think we're all quite aware of the fact that things may never be like they used to be. I don't mean to wax poetically, but let's face it. Western countries have all given up their moral parameters. They've all marched headlong into this morass of soulless and self-absorbed pettiness. I watch people walking down the street with their iPhones on these sticks, and they're literally filming themselves walking to and fro. And then they'll post what they had for dinner on Facebook as though that were important. It means absolutely nothing to the world at large, and in particular to me, what you had for dinner last night. As a matter of fact, most of you haven't had a creative thought in decades. So please spare me all this introspection about one of the most uninteresting people on earth, and that would be you, or me for that matter. I'm not calling out people who I wouldn't consider myself one of. We're just not that interesting. When the Great Britain's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, announced that the 2030 ban on new gas and diesel cars would be delayed by five years, he framed it as a common sense move. And I'm always fascinated with people who have no sense whatsoever and who apparently have very little self-awareness when they tell me about common sense. What he didn't say is that he had been advised that Had the original deadline stuck of 2030 banning all gas and diesel cars, had that original deadline stuck, Britain's electric vehicle market would have been handed over to China. Going green, he was told, would mean going Chinese. I could make a funny kind of comment at that, but I'll be accused of some sort of racism. At the COP Climate Summit, in Dubai that's starting, just started this weekend, other leaders will have reached the very same conclusion. And they're all... All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAP Podcast. 
Com. All a little bit late, including John Kerry, our climate czar, who, by the way, made sure to go in his private jet, which will consume a whole ton of energy and leave a giant carbon footprint. But hey, he's doing it for the greater good. Going green, they told the prime minister, would mean going Chinese. And I think with a little fanfare and a lot of state help, Chinese companies are now the world's leaders in wind, solar, hydro, lithium batteries, and electric cars, dominating either the sectors or the supply chains that support them. The world's greatest polluter, China, which emits twice as much greenhouse gas as the United States, has now become the engine of the green revolution. COP's emission reduction targets may be good for the planet, but they'll be even better for the Chinese economy, which is suffering mightily. Beijing is miles ahead in a tech race that Western countries hadn't quite realized was even underway. Xi Jinping spotted the business opportunity a long time ago. Clear waters and green mountains are mountains of silver and gold. That's what he said two years ago at another COP summit. The gold is pouring in. Chinese companies produced more than three quarters of the world's solar panels last year. They also made three quarters of the world's lithium-ion batteries, which are essential for electric cars. Within a decade, Chinese companies are set to own half of all the lithium-ion battery factories in Europe. A third of electric vehicles sold in Great Britain are made in China, a figure expected to rise quickly as marquees such as MG, BYD, and NEO become more popular. They're sold at prices that European and American rivals struggle to compete with. Solar, batteries, and EVs, well, they form what Chinese state media calls the new three, or Xinjiang, replacing the three manufactured goods that used to drive the economy, clothing, furniture, and home essentials. Home electronics, actually. Solar, batteries, and EVs, the new three. The European Union has started an investigation into just how Chinese cars can be sold so cheaply. EU companies controlled nearly a third of global solar panel production until the 2008 financial crisis, in the aftermath of which solar subsidies were wound down and China seized its moment. We must not repeat in the electric car market the mistakes we made with solar, according to Emmanuel Macron. He warned that earlier this year. The Biden administration, meanwhile, has responded with Beijing-style state subsidies for renewables, $370 billion under the guise of the Inflation Reduction Act, saying that the U.S. is re-entering the climate fight. Prime Minister Sunak knows that Britain cannot compete on subsidies. What is clear is that the vaunted green jobs are more likely to be in Shenzhen 
than in Sheffield. Communities up and down the East Coast can see wind farms. Gary Smith, the boss of the GMB union, told the spectator in September, but they can't point to the jobs. Boris Johnson once promised 250,000 new jobs in the green transition, 60,000 alone in wind. Three years on, Britain is the world's second largest installer of offshore wind power, yet still imports almost all of its turbines. Of the world's largest 15 wind turbine manufacturers, none are British, while 10 are Chinese. Yet the road to net zero continues to hollow out Great Britain's existing industry as well as the U.S.'s. And right now, 3,000 jobs are on the line in Great Britain as Tata Steel moves to lower carbon technology. Beyond the economic headache, there are legitimate concerns over the ethics of Chinese green technology and the security implications of its dominance. A great many of the country's solar panels or their constituent parts come from Xinjiang, probably made by Uyghurs, coerced into laboring in mines and factories. Modern electric vehicles have the potential to record huge amounts of information, such as location data and even conversations between passengers. Given that China's major companies ultimately answer to the government in Beijing, how safe will people's data be if they buy such products? Then there's the real possibility that these cars could be switched off remotely as their software is periodically updated by the manufacturer. MPs in Great Britain earlier this year sounded the alarm about the risks this poses, warning of the threat that China could remotely control the vehicle's steering and brakes. Politicians in the West, including here in America, now talk about de-risking from China, preferring that to the Trump-era policy of decoupling. But in their drive to achieve net zero without supporting their own green industries, Western countries seem too willing to embrace the risks. They are starting to realize that Beijing is already miles ahead in a tech race they hadn't quite realized was even underway. How could China profit from everyone else's cleanup mission while being a worse emitter than the countries that are its customers? In fact, China's dirty reputation has helped Beijing to avoid international scrutiny. It seemed incongruous that Xi, king of the coal plants, could also be pushing for the development of solar panels, wind turbines, and electric cars. Xi sees no contradiction. China wants to grab the obvious export opportunities of renewables and assuage the disgruntled middle class by cutting pollution while continuing to burn record amounts of coal for its own energy needs. China's poorly connected grid also means that some provinces are forced to resort to coal because renewable energy produced on the other side of the country can't even be delivered to them. 
Beijing isn't as good at playing the long game as its critics and some of its cheerleaders say. But its industrial policy on renewable energy is a good example of how authoritarian governments can wait out and outwit their democratic rivals. The research and use of green technology was first put on the ruling party's agenda in 2005 when a renewable energy law was passed. After the global financial crisis, Beijing earmarked $29 billion in its crisis stimulus package for energy-saving, emissions-reducing, and ecological engineering projects. By 2012, two-fifths of the world's solar cells were being produced by Chinese companies. In 2015, the same year that Xi signed up to the Paris Agreement with other world leaders, including Barack Obama, the Chinese leader also announced that Made in China 2025 strategy. It was a 10-year plan to move the country away from cheap, labor-heavy manufacturing to high-tech sectors such as robotics and semiconductors and, crucially, green energy. Subsequent five-year plans have kept local governments and companies on track with quotas and subsidies. The business opportunity was clear. As the developed world's climate guilt worsened, there would be increased demand for solar panels and wind turbines and electric cars. Who better to supply them than the factory of the world? Orders from the above spurred industry, state-owned enterprises, and local governments into action. The People's Bank of China started backing cheap loans to be given out by regional banks to fund green projects. So far, Chinese banks have lent some $44 billion in this cause. Government money was also spent on creating domestic demand for renewables, tapping into China's huge market of 1.4 billion people. In Shanghai, for example, free license plates were given to those who bought EVs and hybrids, whereas a plate for a new gas car cost at least $13,000. Compare this to the stop-start approach taken by Western governments. In 2012, after China's takeover of the solar industry, Europe introduced tariffs on Chinese solar panels before lifting them six years later in the name of net zero. In the past couple of years, however, a number of European solar companies have gone bust. And in the face of Chinese competition, more will. And now the EU is debating whether to reinstate tariffs once again. Or consider British Volt, a British battery startup that Boris Johnson hailed as part of the green industrial revolution. Well, that firm collapsed in January, in part because the government wouldn't give it an advance on a $130 million grant when it ran into financial difficulties. Ten months on, the Gigafactory in Blythe stands half-built, and British Vault's former boss has pointed the finger of blame at Sunak and government bureaucracy. 
Today, the only gigafactory being built in the United Kingdom is overseen by Envision, which, of course, is a Chinese multinational. China's green overhaul is about more than just winning Western contracts. The CCP is on a drive to clean up at home, having faced mounting criticism from the country's new middle classes about air and water quality. At the time of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the Ministry of Health admitted that air pollution was killing hundreds of thousands of Chinese citizens each year. Residents in Beijing, the worst affected city, began sharing the U.S. Embassy's air quality ratings because they didn't trust the official figures. The People's Bank of China is backing cheap loans to be given out to fund these green projects. The ruling party declared a war against pollution nine years ago, and its population takes this quite seriously. When a family friend told me about a new four-story home in his hometown of Nanjing a few years ago, one of the first things he showed off was the central ventilation system, which filtered the outside air. Although China is the world's 13th most polluted country, its air is becoming cleaner remarkably quickly. It took London 50 years to have its air pollution. Beijing seems to have done the same in five years, according to international observers. Hundreds of billions of dollars have also been spent on cleaning up China's rivers and on the Green Wall of China in the Gobi Desert, a reforestation project which is intended to reclaim an area the size of Ireland each year. Forests cover almost a quarter of the country, up from 17% in 1990. China is on track to have its carbon emissions peak by 2030 and aims to be carbon neutral by 2060. That's a tough target, but not impossible. Other countries are committed to reaching net zero sooner, which on current trends will ensure that China's grip on the ever-expanding green tech sector will keep tightening. It's not too late for the West to catch up, though. The EU and the U.S. are digging deep. Britain doesn't have the cash, so Britain's best bet may be to crack on with nascent technologies such as hydrogen or carbon capture and storage where no country has yet secured a lead. Investing in these technologies could give the U.K. first mover advantage, according to Adam Berman, the deputy director at the industry group Energy UK. In that industry, if you stand still, you lose. Well, gee, John Kerry, where exactly is the United States? Oh, that's right. He's still got his plane, so he really doesn't care where we are on the global scale. One of the other things that I read over the weekend was from a professor in Columbia. We don't know who he is because if he were known, he'd be silenced real quickly. But what we need is more professors to speak up like he did. He said, I am an assistant professor at Columbia Business School. I'm a father, a husband, an uncle, and a son. I am a 40-year-old man, and last week 
I found myself crying in front of a group of complete strangers. In a video that has since gone viral, I stood on Columbia University's main campus and pleaded with my employer to protect me and help me protect the thousands of Jewish students whose lives and safety have been entrusted to us by worried parents across the United States. I pleaded with my employer to help me protect the lives of thousands of Jewish students from pro-terror student organizations who openly laud Hamas, an internationally recognized terrorist organization. I pleaded with the presidents of colleges and universities all around the country to take a clear moral stance against rape and torture and the kidnapping of helpless civilians. I pleaded with colleges and universities to live up to their stated mission of humanism and enlightenment. I pleaded and still plead because the silence of college presidents across the country is deafening. I'm not tenured. I could be fired for this. But if my research into behavioral psychology has taught me anything, he says, it's that looking back on my life, I am more likely to regret not taking a stand. I can't afford not to take a stance. Not when students' lives are on the line. Not when my children's lives are on the line. My children may be American citizens, but through their mother and me, they are Israelis too. And because they are Israelis, because they are Jews, I fear for them. I fear for my two-year-old daughter, who's funny and brave and thinks everyone in the world is her friend. I fear for my seven-year-old son, who still asks me to sit next to his bed for a few minutes every night when I tuck him into bed. I fear because there are student organizations on my own campus who see my beautiful children as legitimate targets. I fear because the president of my university, my very own employer, refuses to speak up against such senseless violence and hatred. Let's call this what it is. This is cowardice. I see my sons and daughters' faces in the faces of the hundreds of innocent children and teenagers who were murdered, tortured, raped, brutalized, and kidnapped on October 7th. For Hamas and its supporters, those children are acceptable targets. And right now, in colleges and universities across the country, there are hundreds of pro-terror student organizations that are celebrating these vile crimes against humanity. This is what the president of Columbia is refusing to condemn. This is what the president of Harvard is refusing to condemn. This is what the presidents of Yale and NYU and UC Berkeley and many other enlightened institutions throughout the country are refusing to condemn. They would never allow student organizations to celebrate the senseless loss of life in the horrific attacks of 9-11. They would never allow student organizations to celebrate the horrific murder of George Floyd. They would never allow student organizations to celebrate the mass shooting of more than 100 LGBTQ plus people in an Orlando nightclub in June of 2016. And yet, 
when it comes to Jewish lives, when it comes to my own children's lives, they could care less. Let the professor be as clear as he can. This is not about being pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. This is about making a clear distinction between legitimate resistance and unspeakable crimes against humanity. This is about human decency. You can support the rights of millions of innocent Palestinians and still take a moral stance against heinous violence and brutality. I know, the professor said, because I do. You can spend your adult life advocating for the establishment of a prosperous Palestinian state next to a prosperous Israeli state and still be willing to draw the line at rape. I know, he says, because he does. You can be a lefty and a softy who can't fathom why we can't just end this senseless cycle of violence, yet still shout at the top of your lungs that shooting babies in their cribs and burning their corpses is just plain evil. Plain, plain evil. I know, because I am, and I do. You can be pro-Israel and pro-Palestine and anti-terror. I know, says the professor, because I am. Parents from across the country have reached out to me in the past week asking if their kids are safe. Thousands of worried parents who have been losing sleep as they see their children's campuses rampaged by extremist organizations that openly celebrate and encourage terrorism. Thousands of moms and dads who only want to make sure that their children are protected from harm. To all those parents, I reply, no, your children are not safe. Because as a professor, I can tell you that universities across the country would rather appease pro-terror campus coalitions than care for their Jewish students. Because as a professor, I can tell you that the presidents of universities across the U.S. are more concerned with getting bad press than with getting your children home safely. What sort of education is your child getting at a place that refuses to condemn terror-sympathizing organizations and allows them to roam freely on campus? What sort of education is your child getting at a place that gives a platform and a mix to organizations that celebrate the execution of infants in their cribs, the raping of teenagers, the kidnapping of toddlers, the moral and intellectual bankruptcy of universities throughout the country is now undeniable. But I know that if we were all to work together, we can make a real difference. This is not about the professor. He's not a leader, he said. He's just a dad. It's just a dad who is scared and who is willing to put everything on the line to protect the children. People are telling about committees they formed and the PTAs they've joined and the politicians they've called and the TV and radio shows to which they have called in, demanding that their voice be heard. People are writing about stopping their annual donations to their alma mater until it takes a clear stance against pure evil, until it takes a clear stance against those who celebrate pure evil. If you want to get in touch with this professor, just email him, shadevi 
2023 at gmail.com. Share this message with as many people as you can, because if you're listening to this podcast, then you know exactly where I stand on this issue. And I have a small request. Pass it around. We're just trying to get the message through. Thank you for listening. And of course, there'll be a new No Restraint podcast out shortly. And of course, we hope that you will not only listen, but spread it around. God bless you. God bless Israel. And God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.